Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole. Season 3, your three favorite hosts are going through some of their top favorite bands and albums and talking about them in random order. And uh, we have landed on one of Eric's picks, uh, which I think is a great band to discuss and even a fantastic record um, to also discuss because... It's not the most obvious one in their catalog, but we're talking about Velvet Underground and what should be probably canonically considered their last album, Loaded, at least in 1970. Uh, so this is Mark, uh, and uh, I also have Eric and Steve with me. Uh, if you're just dropping in the first very time, because uh, my two intrepid co-hosts, my cohorts, they do such a great job of uh, getting socially engaged on the internet, uh, visiting those Reddit pages, those Facebook groups, as I just sit back and uh, yak at you folks out there. You get the luxury of me just talking to you, but these guys are really the uh, in the salt mines, really trying to make something of this project that we've created. Um, without further ado, because there's been much ado in this little monologue intro, I think I should first introduce Steven. Steven, how the hell are you? I'm great. Can't wait to dig into the Velvet Goldmine. Oh, yeah. Another... I hope one of you guys rewatched that. Uh, I mean, nope. I think we talked about Velvet Goldmine when we... Um, I mean, it doesn't really involve Lou Reed. But, uh, you know, our season two uh, topic, David Bowie, certainly was a big friend and... Very fascinated with Lou Reed, so it all, it all it's all connected, man. And we even Lou talked Reed. about a Lou Reed record in that second we season, did. didn't we? That's right. We did talk about the uh, Transformer. We're a little house divided on that one. Uh, you two think it's uh, making your food taste better, and I'm over here thinking, all right, enough with this, like, uh, one-man act in that last half of that record. But, you know, ultimately... It's a classic record for, for a reason. Lou Reed is uh, uh, definitely very singular. He was one of a kind. Um, so that was Steven. And uh, let's hear from pretty much the man who's going to take the keys from me tonight. And uh, Thank God somebody has to. I know, right? <laughs> like, if this was the gong show, I would have been gonged like at least a minute ago. Did you visit, uh, did you visit your uh, in-laws today? <laughs> um, no. I didn't, but we did a lot of uh, nonsense uh, last night, which I feel like every weekend now we just need like, I don't know if it's my midlife crisis really going into overdrive, but I'm trying to really savor. Um, you know, this is probably going to be the most degenerative thing that I've ever said on this podcast. But, you know, one of my favorite things to do That's is something. to have it. Here we go. It's, no, 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 no. And this isn't going to get me canceled because it. it <clears throat> I really like to hang out with my family. And when I mean my family, I mean my kids. So, like, I can have a drink around my kids without... And I feel like, not to say that I come more alive, but I definitely get a little bit more social. We're listening to music. We're dancing together as a big family. And then my in-laws, my cousins are there. 
Uh, nothing's getting out of hand. It's just we, we involve the kids. And, you know, I guess if I would say like partying with my kids in a very responsible manner, still having a good time, getting loose, having some drinks, you know, uh, laughing. Uh, so was, like, yeah, me drinking with my kids, good. I guess my kids are not drinking. Let me clarify that. But drinking with my kids and engaging in an activity as a family is one of my favorite things to do. If Mark was on the stand, I would just, you know, I'd just be like, just, just let him talk. Just let him keep talking. <laughs> oh, that's very interesting. Alex Jones over here. <laughs> We've got him right where we so, want him. <laughs> so, Your Honor, as you can hear, the man can't talk to his children unless he's drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Did I read that right? Uh, yes, you've read that right. Uh, <laughs> well, Mark, I actually know. I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, yeah, there. Yeah, there. You, the uh, the fun imaginative imaginative play gets a little better with some uh, uh, grandpa's old cough medicine. So I know I know what you're talking about. It's not. But I just yeah. it, I, you know I just I, I comment on it because it's so foreign to me. Uh, not drinking, obviously. Uh, <laughs> no, just the uh, the uh, and both of you like we've talked about this and now you know uh, whatever the podcast listeners. This is what you come here for. Is that I can't imagine socializing with my in-laws in the way you guys do. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if I'm jealous of it, but it, it is interesting to me. It seems like a foreign world to me. All right. Well, we have fun here, don't we? We do. Did we introduce yourself, Eric? Oh, hey, I'm Eric. Okay. Yeah, I'm Eric. yeah. thanks. What's, uh, what's first on our agenda, Mark? I believe what we do on the show, before we get into the old meat and potatoes, we really have to uh, eat our vegetables, uh, so to speak. We really have to do a little housekeeping. We like to keep our view, uh, listeners on our timeline by telling you what's in the news a month later as you listen to this. <laughs> so, without further ado, what is in the news? What is, as uh, Steve likes to call, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? Yeah. Oh my God! Did you hear that? Um, the Raptors. Yes, the Raptors got it. The Raptors figured out how to open doors. <laughs> Did you hear about this? The Raptors got in here. <laughs> exactly. Clever. And, uh, I'm Stephen Chambers, and I'm dead now. The Raptors got me. Uh, not a lot of a lot of the stuff on the news wire, but if we're to if we're to pick things up from the last episode, uh, we talked a lot about uh, all things related to black. Sabbath and uh, Zach Wild, Ozzy's one of his guitar players, he goes back to time and time again. Uh, they're, they're Pantera, Pantera, Eric's favorite band, Pantera. Uh, they are reuniting in a fashion, and that's interesting because both Dimebag Daryl and uh, his brother Vinny uh, are dead, and they were kind of the heart and soul of that band. But uh, Rex, the bass player, and Phil and Zelmo are teaming up with uh, Charlie from Anthrax on drums and then Zach Wild on guitar. And if I think if anybody could do the uh, the Dimebag Daryl thing, I think Zach Wild's the guy to do it. Um, like, you know, there's a lot of crossover there because Dimebag Daryl called everybody brother and uh, Zach Wild calls everyone brother. And they uh, they're going to be... Hulk Hogan and- calls everyone brother. Exactly. And there is, there is, you know, the demographic there, it circles over in many different ways. Southern fried Um, guitar licks for sure. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so that's interesting. I, uh, ah, I've seen Pantera live before. I don't need, 
I'll probably go to see this version of it. Maybe, maybe I'll go to, you know, an amphitheater and see it just because I'd be interesting to see Zach Wilde playing Pantera songs, but probably not. Who knows? The guy checking Anyhow. me out, guy checking out my groceries at, uh, at Trader Joe's saw my sisters of mercy shirt and was like, Oh, they're hard band. I like hard music. Yeah. And he's you heard those new Megadeth singles. And then he talked started talking about the, the Pantera show. He's like, man, you got to go. It looks great. Can't wait for tickets. So uh, you, uh, yeah, no, those new Megadeth songs. Uh, have you heard about those? Yeah, they're great. Uh, I agree with the guy at Trader Joe's. Yeah. Um, yeah. Megadeth is putting out a new album. They've released some songs and Mr. Mustaine's doing, he's doing okay. Uh, I I take comfort in Dave Mustaine's weird nasally voice. It uh, makes me chuckle. Hello, me. Hello, That's me. right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Pantera's reuniting. Megadeth has some new songs out. We've never talked about Megadeth in this podcast before. They don't count. Uh, I don't. I don't have a lot of news. That's it. That's as close um, as I can get. Is Zach Wild being in Pantera? That's the only news I have. My favorite thing that I shared with you guys this week was the hard times had. <laughs> you know, they're the the rock version of the onion that headline jefferson davis hologram to appear as an mc at the pantera concerts yeah that's good that's good comedy (laughs) no i i i am a big i think i'm not a big but i'm a pantera fan i like to put pantera on but yeah my god there's some of the worst fans in the history of uh america there's a you know a, a lot of a lot of Pantera fan fans hate the FBI today. I'll put it that way. Boo-hoo. In other news, there is another thing over here in the Newswire. I just found it. On September 16th, that David Bowie documentary that's sanctioned by the actual David Bowie estate is coming out in IMAX. Uh, have you guys uh, watched the trailer for that? No, I, I, I am sleeping on this one. You were ignoring you were you were Mark was ignoring the writer's room that night when I sent it at 2 a.m. as I'm like to do. Right. I like it that you guys wake up sometimes and you're just like, what? Steve just it's like the bat like phone. Eight, eight things overnight. <laughs> like, what was he doing up at three? Yeah, you know, it was important uh, things that I had to text you. Well, I remember but, uh, when that when that shitty that shitty like Bowie biopic came out where they didn't get the rights to the music. And well, other well, than hold, having on, hold on. Uh, Mark hold on. Eric. Eric. Yes. yes. You say shitty, but did you watch it? No. Yeah, you're just assuming because that's what the mainstream media told you. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. How was it, Steve? <laughs> oh, by all accounts, it's terrible. I'm not going to waste my time on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> but when that came, uh, when oh, that came out, uh, yeah. that was a good bit. Yeah. Well, Duncan Jones. Uh, uh, said like you know we don't like sanction this movie what would the only way you could do a bowie movie is it needs to be some sort of like avant-garde documentary with animation and you know uh old songs and you know whatever it looks like this guy uh what's his name um brett morgan who did that kurt cobain montage of heck movie um, yeah looks like he kind of figured out that that kind of balance to make it a trippy but informative documentary looks great that, that, that thing's 20 years old and I can watch it today. It's a high quality documentary. So there yeah. you go. It has a pedigree. There you go. Um, well, next up before again, we're, we're still eating our veggies folks. 
um, in our next award-winning segment, Plug Like a Hole, uh, where mm-hmm. we go around table and we talk about things that we're plugging, what we're consuming, yeah. what we're digesting. In, in, the, in the vault, uh, things that Mark is not allowed to ever plug again is any version of Star Trek. And nope. I think that's it. I think that's all you're banned from ever talking about again. No problem. Unless we're talking about like current, not past. I think like well, if there's Picard season three, like are we saying no. Star Trek, uh, all watch, Star Trek now has been uh, if you, canceled if you watch, on the show. If you watch any new Star Trek, you're not allowed to talk about it ever again. <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm going to break my one rule, apparently. <laughs> I am currently Pitts. watching uh, a season of Star of uh, a series of Star Trek, but I won't get into that then. Mark, yeah, you, shoot, you, shoot you me a site. Side text and I'll I'll pretend like it's my 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 play. <laughs> you so, see here in section five, I've article one. You said really, nothing about Eric talking about Star Trek. Really been enjoying uh, the Enterprise, and it's funny because sometimes Jen will come in. Wait a minute, Eric. Why would Mark's <laughs> wife be coming in the room when you're watching Enterprise? I already finished that one. <laughs> All right, Eric, go ahead. Eric, start us off. All right. All you're right. Up, you're up first. What, well, are you, what are you doing? When it comes to TV, I wonder if Steve is going to bring this up. So I will maybe just wait. Um, Let's do a twofer. Do a I know twofer. what you're going to talk about. It's the yeah. best show that's on right now. <laughs> the best show, the best show, that's the best show not named Better Call Saul or maybe right. Westworld. That's all yeah, right. Right, 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 right. Well, I mean, we're all we're all watching the rehearsal. I, I would hope it's uh, it's more of uh, Nathan Fielder. Uh, who's kind of created this character who is, you know, almost autistic level of social awkwardness. Um, and uh, he kind of, with an outrageous budget, got a chance to create a premise. Um, we all know what it's about. He's, you know, giving people a chance to practice, you know, stressful situations before it happens using a warehouse, remade sets that look like their real life uh, settings and then actors that come in. And in doing this, in one of the rehearsals, they just couldn't get the mix right. And Nathan ends up joining that rehearsal. So there'll be like an episode where they're actually doing the, like his show, but then they keep cutting to him stuck in this other. It's got so many layers. If I'm confusing you, uh, then it's one of those things you just kind of have to watch, but it has so many layers to it. And it, it is, it is genius and hilarious. Yeah, there's no way to convey to people how good it is unless they watch it, which, duh, that that just makes sense. But, yeah, the the base premise of just, yeah, a guy, he gets on Craigslist and he looks for people that need help getting through something and he will help them stage a rehearsal of it many times of a tough conversation or mainly tough conversations before they actually go do it. Okay, that sounds interesting. But then it manages to go off into directions that I – never would have thought coming it's obviously half reality some of it has to be scripted but either way i i am just uh i i love it it's up there with any other show that i watch where i'm like oh man i what's gonna happen next uh the rehearsals just rocketed into that that file and part of it you know this is the bob's burgers household uh nathan fielder does the voice of uh the oldest belcher daughter um and uh, also Nathan for you was enjoyable. His his extreme awkwardness to some is off putting. That's the point. I find it it crosses over from off putting into just 
hilarious. I find the guy to be hilarious. He's he's just so awkward. It's uh, it's incredible. He's he's awkward, but also kind of weirdly sweet at times. I just uh, I like the guy. So the rehearsal. It has six episodes. The finale airs next week. So by the time you listen to this, it will be eight months old. Yeah, I mean, like what works, what works with it is the same thing that like the best episodes of Nathan for you uh, were when you could tell he was kind of pushing his own kind of need to connect to people through whatever he was setting up in that show. And this is just that uh, blasted out to 11. So, yeah, it's it's good stuff. Mark, I don't know if you've watched it, but. No, I, I still haven't caught up with it yet. I feel like I'm working through a lot of other uh, content from kind of just the weekly schedule uh, and other shows that me and the wife like to watch right before we fall asleep. So, yeah, it's still not flying on my radar. But uh, having said that, I am familiar with some of his other work and uh, definitely a, a, an interesting guy and apparently just a very comic genius in his timing and the awkwardness that he can create, um, but not in that cringe level that uh, Steve was kind of referring to more in that, like, I don't know. It's yeah, it's, it's like, a you have sympathy for him. Yeah. You have sympathy. A, yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine. Um, I only have two other friends that are not in this podcast and I was talking uh, to him or her and uh, she or he said that, it reminded them very much of the interview sec- segments with Ricky Gervais on the British office is like the weird level of awkwardness. And that, like, I, that I don't, yeah. it, I don't know if you guys remember like the, 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 the awkward and long pauses on the British office were amazing yeah. yes. when they would talk to yes. Ricky Gervais one-on-one. And, it's, it, it's yeah. that and it was really his, his sadness was coming, would come through and whatever he was doing. Yeah, that was his best work. He peaked yeah. early, that Ricky Gervais on The Office. Oh, boy. Sure did. Well, you didn't like Ghost Town. Um, anyways, uh, <laughs> as far as albums go, uh, Panda Bear. I don't know if you guys like Panda Bear. I liked Panda Bear. I quit going to raves when I was 19. (laughs) Ray, I don't think they're ravey. They're not really ravey, but their first album was inspired by dance music. But it's... If I'm not wrong, so this is uh, the uh, guys from... What's the name of... It's Noah Noah Lennox from Animal Collective. Animal Collective, that's So one guy, yeah, yeah, one guy from it. And it is inspired by electronic and dance music. But it's a lot of organic instruments... It is very repetitive, but noisy and um, <clears throat> and like the bass is not always in the forefront. It's turned down. It's not like it's very it, sometimes it goes to minimalistic places. It's not traditional dance music in any way. Um, the backing music is always very interesting. And he sings like Brian Wilson. So it's like it's kind of like a, a, a Beach Boys uh, slap over like, yeah, like a rainbowy uh, minimalist kind of dance thing anyways there's a new album called reset and it's actually a collaboration between um between panda bear and this guy peter kember who's a goes under a producer named sonic boom um when you listen to it it pretty much just sounds like a panda bear album but uh 
uh, Sonic Boom does sing on some songs and um, their voices go really well together. And it's a, uh, it's just a very pleasant, pleasant listen and it's fun and it's got a lot of color, got a lot of color to it. Um, so I do like this new, uh, this new album uh, reset Panda bear and Sonic Boom. Tiger uppercut. There you go. <laughs> Spinning round kick. <laughs> perfect you know what i don't you know what i don't recommend (laughs) i'm not i'm not plugging so tonight i'm uh on the episodes where i don't host sometimes i will try to babysit my kid and do my part of the podcast at the same time makes for great radio i'm sure and uh i put james and the giant peach on for the two-year-old and i'm watching it out of the corner of my eye right now have you guys ever watched that movie before it's odd. Oh, it's great. It's yeah, great. Henry, yeah, but Henry it's weird. Selleck, it's weird. I think, yeah. Yeah, okay. um, yeah we I, all remember. I, I remember all... reading the book, yeah. We all remember the Nightmare Before Christmas animation side of it. Yeah. But the live action stuff is just nightmare fuel. Those yeah. horrible, yeah. the horrible aunts and uh, Peter Postlethwaite as the, uh, the, like, the guy that goes around selling stuff and sells yes. them the peach or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's uh, Mr. Kobayashi from The Usual Suspects, among many other things. Um, yeah, this is a uh, horrifying what I'm seeing right now. This is not for children, if you ask me. Uh, <laughs> gonna write a letter to Disney. The, the, Disney's got some weird st- ever since they got permission to add some more stuff on there, it's a little more adult. They've got some weird stuff on there. Like, there's a show called Pickles, Pickle and Peanut that uh, the six year old's been watching. Yeah, it's like a fever. It looks like the, the most American or night, it looks like the most adult swim thing that uh, Adult Swim ever had. Uh, on on Disney. <laughs> oh no, yeah, no. I think I have seen that one actually. Yeah. When, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it was on it, like it's D well, plus. Yeah, cool. it, you know, it's well known. You know, the the, the Disney is uh, terrible for children if you listen to some people. Um, right. but uh, not not in the way that I I think that they uh they envisioned with uh, pickle and peanut. But I digress. Pickle, and actually, and you know what we're. This is a Disney household. This is a Disney podcast. Disney is just fine. Thank you very much, everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, from my plug station, uh, besides not suggesting James and the Giant Peach, uh, one thing that I have been watching is we talked about the rehearsal. Um, I did get around finally to watching the, the boys, and I give it my about close to my highest recommendation. I'm almost done with season three and what could have just been a one note joke, uh, much like the, the comic book that is based off of lost steam pretty quickly. In my opinion, um, the TV show, it, it, it's, it, the basic premise is the same. You got a group of a vigilant or not, you know, like a, a kind of like an a team that is anti superhero. And also a lot of storylines that focus more on what is superheroes are in the real world. And they were, you know, a corporate monolith and it's great satire. It's acted well. The guy that plays the main bad guy, the Homelander, he deserves every award uh, that you can give him. He at his facial ticks and line deliveries is just top tier. Um, great stuff. Carl, Carl Urban's always a good time to have around. And uh, then you got, yeah, you got Paul Reiser in season three does kind of a actual 
uh, Robert Evans analog that uh, cracks me up. But the jokes are good. The the production value is good. The acting's pretty good. The stories take left turns that you wouldn't expect. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. It's very gross and gory and, you know, just uh, crude humor, but still smart. Um, they've done the, they've done versions of dick jokes. I never would have ever envisioned before that, uh, got me howling to beat the bin. So, uh, yeah, I'm almost done with season three of the boys. I, I, I'm late to the party on that show, but having a great time with it. And I know both of you have watched it. Yeah. Why might we give a little yeah. credit well, to, a uh, to let's give a little credit to Seth Rogen producer who like, uh, he did all the preacher show too. So obviously he's got, he's got his yeah. heart into like these Garth Ennis, uh, comic Real fast, books. did you guys watch those uh, that that series? Yeah, I, I never finished finish it, but I'm yeah. going to. I'm, yeah. I'm going okay. to because of the boys. Um, I think the boys like... is better, but uh, I still really enjoyed that adaptation of the preacher. I was like, this is probably the closest you can get to doing it. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's almost not. It's not unadaptable. They probably did the best you can. You can't. You can't do that page for page. It would be nonsense. So yeah. Well, that's the Seth Rogen has like, a cameo in in this last season of The Boys. That's I saw that. That hilarious. was uh, hilarious. That uh, was a uh, yes. He was doing a uh, a Zoom call that was kind of intimate with <laughs> with uh, uh, some lady. Um, yeah, I really like The Boys. It's fun. So if anybody's on the fence about it, it's uh, it's worth your time. It's on Amazon Prime. And then a couple of uh, things I've been listening to. Uh, from the the typical file, uh, the new Amon Amarth album came out, and they're uh, stalwarts of the uh, Viking metal genre. But their new album is really a good time. It's called The Great Heathen Army. It's it's got it's got some just some anthems on it. It's produced well. It's uh it's not it's not too aggressive to the point to where they lose the melody. They actually have a great ear for melody. Uh, that new, new Amon Amarth album is is great stuff. Yonaganda twists and turns, mighty in his wrath, the eyes are full of primal hate. Maggie Rogers is from the uh, music my wife likes that I actually like to uh, file. Sure. And uh, she's a singer songwriter, kind of a uh, folkish Americana, but she'll put in some electric bloops and bleeps every once in a while. Um, I, I think she has a great voice. Uh, it's kind of indie folk pop, but I, she's really good at what she does. And uh, yeah, her, her new record is called, uh, oh, what is that new one called? 
It's called Surrender. And uh, I really enjoyed it. So the new Maggie Rogers album, Surrender. Give the, give that a lesson. It's uh, If Amon Amarth isn't your thing with their tales of Saxons and Vikings, maybe Maggie Rogers is with her quiet, quiet songs about maybe a breakup or maybe just a good cup of coffee. Ah, that sounds nice on a Sunday morning. It is. Yeah. Um, so I've been working from home lately. And when I mean working from home, it's more along the lines of just me doing a lot of reading as I'm doing a lot of self-guided trainings for this role that I'm doing. And I, I like to listen um, to music while I do such things. But I've found in my uh, older years that I can't read and listen to music that has a lot of like vocals. Unfortunately, it, no, it kind of no, gets me distracted. Yeah, that happens to me. I can't listen that's to podcasts. That's a thing. That just yeah. that's a yeah. that's a that's a non-starter. Which uh, I can sometimes work and listen to podcasts. That's a little different if I'm the one typing. Yeah, but I I cannot like read a book or anything and listen to a podcast anymore. Exactly. And then, and then, yeah, a, a song, music with a lot of words, it's tough. Uh, sometimes I can listen to, it's funny, I can listen to music where I can't understand the words. Like, and I listen to a lot of music where I can't understand the words. That's fine. Yeah. But like, I can't put on like Johnny Cash and read a, read a book. I can't. <laughs> exactly. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> like Nick Cave. Yeah. I just, I, I tried to think that I could do it, but I'm just... As I get older, I can't do it. So. No, I I have a reading playlist that's all instrumental shit. Yeah, no, that's a thing yeah. for sure. Man, and it's s- all Vangelis, just Vangelis. <laughs> well, here's the thing, and so I was like Andrew thinking to dream. myself, well, I want to listen to something, but you know, what would be kind of not so much ambient instrumental music? What would be good to like keep me like still aware and focused? I was like movie scores. Let's listen to some movie scores. And I was like, you know what? Let's look through the work of Hans Zimmer. And uh, so that's what I did. I first was like, well, let me listen to like the Batman Nolan movies. And I was like, oh, shit. I didn't realize that he did uh, two of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and um, True Romance and, you know, the rest. And so, like, I started going through just Hans Zimmer's work and especially the stuff that he did do with Christopher Nolan uh, is some of the best um, I mean I, I I would honestly say Hans Zimmer is our generation's version of John Williams he's such a great composer um, and it really just like has these emotional moments um, especially on uh, the score for like Interstellar uh, there's some there's some like Inception style like moments on like shit man this can like make me tear up as I'm like just reading about like you know networking and things like that it's uh it's very moving music uh and then I realized like oh why didn't he do Tenant and apparently he didn't do Tenant because he was so committed to wanting to do the uh, score for Dune and he was essentially book solid so he, he chose wisely and so, yeah. And so I was like, all right, I, uh, I appreciate that. And then, so I was like, well, let me listen to what tenant sounds like. And it's not a bad soundtrack, but it's so inspired by the way Hans Zimmer composes, you know, you've got this warm, you know, like droney 
strings and kind of this feeling of foreboding, but then at times I can have these like emotional swells, like on the Inception track Time. Um, but uh, I come to find out it was composed by a guy named Ludwig Gorenson, who has uh, some history of working with um, Childish Gambino. I think he produced a couple of his records. So you definitely get a little bit more of a hip hop feel to it while throwing in some Hans Zimmer. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been doing. Listening to a lot of Hans Zimmer. That's good. That's all right. Yeah. He's never going to top right. the, the, the Driving Miss Daisy soundtrack, if you ask me. That's it. <laughs> once, you, once, you, once you get to the top of Mount Tandy, you cannot do anything more. Once you get to the top of Mount Tandy. On right. Golden Pond. Yep, that's that's yep, yep. from the fried green tomatoes. You're talking to the granny grabber, so you know. <laughs> watch out. <laughs> that's a little joke from the writers' room, listeners. Uh, yeah, we'll we're not that gonna. That's not. <laughs> I really hope that there's not some like person out well, there that is known as the granny grabber. <laughs> We've got him. We'll get into it when we talk about the song New Age. It's just a restless feeling. <laughs> so as I as I try to just get us to the point, um, yeah, we talked a lot about Lou Reed in season two, but we didn't talk a whole lot about the Velvet Underground because we were talking about Lou Reed. So if you want to hear a lot about Lou Reed, go back to that one. But Eric, as far as the the Velvet Underground, the whole collective. Where did this whole thing begin? I mean, this is, it's been covered in many books and many uh, documentaries. It's its definitely a, a, a very important point in American music history. Yes, yes, yes. All right, history, here we go. Watch me now. Um, so, <laughs> 1964, uh, New York City. Lou Reed has been working, he was working for one of those, like, uh, uh, it was like a record label that basically just made these compilations of like ripoff songs, like songs that sounded like famous songs at the time. And apparently that was a thing back then. And Lou Reed was like their head songwriter. Um, but, you know, on the side, he's getting to know, you know, these kind of up and coming cool bohemian musicians and, um, you know, spending some time at the uh, at Andy Warhol's factory. And um, initially they've got the first group was um you know lou reed who was the singer and guitarist and john kale who you know played bass played violin he's multi-instrumental instrumentalist he could you know pretty much play anything and then sterling morrison is the guitarist and and then the drummer at that time was angus mccleese but before they even settled on a name they swapped out angus with mo tucker maureen tucker um and that was in 1965, who played on um, most of the albums, not the one we're talking about tonight, but that is the the main lineup for, especially for phase one, um, which essentially they have two phases. Uh, and um, you know the, the 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 dynamics of the of the people, obviously Lou Reed, and and you can listen to like Steve said, our Lou Reed episode um, really goes into him and his solo career. And he was a prickly person, um, 
but you know he did have pop sensibilities no doubt about it but he really liked having that kind of street swagger in his in his songwriting in his lyrics um john kale uh comes in with this like out of left field um european uh avant-garde songwriting mindset and sterling morrison is really just such a dependable guitar player he can do it all he can do the noise solos the based on off-tempo jazz to your standard just southern rock uh shredders and then mo tucker is a minimalist drummer if you've ever seen any clips of them live she does something that i've never seen before uh where she plays and her bass drum is uh laid to this like laid on its not its side because it's already on its side it's laid down so usually a bass drum stands up and you hit a pedal and it hits it right she takes the pedal out and lays it down and hits the big huge skin of the bass drum with a stick like it's a tom and that's how she, that's how she plays drums and it's, she really only uses like four things on her set um and she just plays that 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 the the bass hits with a with a stick instead of a pedal uh never seen it before um but uh she certainly brings a a uh crunchy um and like i said minimalist uh percussion but she is solid and can keep a beat um so right off the bat they uh they they sign uh, they sign to andy warhol he becomes their manager in 66 and um they start playing at at the factory which obviously is is his like art uh his art warehouse um and they would do this like you know weekly show called the exploding plastic inevitable i know that name i know i know steve i can hear steve's eyes rolling from from here um but it was like a, a multimedia thing so they'd play these like grainy black and white clips of stuff andy warhol was shooting while uh strobe lights were going go-go dancers and Velvet Underground playing this this noisy kind of approach to rock and roll. Um, and, you know, they were known for, and like, you know, models hanging out, you know, artists, um, uh, you know, definitely a very big drug scene there. And, um, they, you know, they were known for playing these songs that just shredded and they would just, you know, go into these jazzy, noisy solos uh, forever, um, uh, just droning, droning out. And it was just, it was certainly an experience and it was truly in the late sixties, mid, I'm sorry, mid sixties, truly avant-garde. Well, uh, as they were recording their first album, Andy Warhol insisted that they bring, um, a, a female singer into the group and German model Nico was hired, um, who, as Mark said earlier, has a low voice, um, and certainly, uh, has this like cold cool detached uh style presence and um i guess add something to to that i mean lou reed kind of already has a cold like singing approach but he's you know he still emotes a bit and is very you know streetwise uh meanwhile nico's coming in as as kind of this almost uh uh omniscient uh vibe of cool um and they make their first album and obviously lou reed was not crazy about this edition that was forced by andy warhol you know lou reed saw himself as the lead singer um and acquiesced like three songs 
uh, or, or, or let three songs go for Nico to sing on. She did some backing vocals on the album, but she only sings on three of the tracks. Um, this is the Velvet Underground on Nico. This is the banana cover. Um, and this one, uh, you know, is definitely considered by most as like the, the, the solid gold star for avant-garde rock from the 60s. When you listen to it, it, it you, you can kind of see why. It's right off the bat. Got songs like Sunday Morning, which is just warm and soft. But there's this violin going and at some point this weird violin. Um, it's a little bit repetitive, uh, a little bit noisy, but some, somehow comforting. You got Waiting for the Man, which is like almost like a Suffragette City le level jammer. Addicted to heroin and just waiting to buy it from his dealer and it's just a story it's like not even really a story it's just kind of like setting up the scene of somebody who's who's waiting waiting for their dealer but it gets the this the guitar gets bigger and nastier as it goes on it definitely feels like a loop um songs like venus and furs which is about snm where the violin is just doing this repetitive thing it almost feels like the first goth song ever written all tomorrow's parties very similar vibe um but the thing is, is there is a pop sensibility. There is hooks on these songs. Not all of them. There is some straight up noise rock, like 14 minute songs, like Sister Ray. But um, but it's it's it certainly deserves its place. I don't know. What do you guys think about that first one? It's an all time classic. I mean, um, that was my first introduction to the Velvet Underground was buying the Banana record. I guess the Andy Warhol one. Um, that was the one that David Bowie, uh, you know, talked about as being very inspirational for him. And it kind of just progressed for when you're listening to uh, someone who's kind of redefining musical styles for you and then trying to figure out what their influences were. That was one of the ones that was often cited. So picked up that one. And I think there's one song on there from. Yeah. Sorry, Mark, really quick. That Same with me. Like, that was always on, like, top 500 albums of all time. Like, it was a top 10 albums of all time. Like, it was always considered, yeah. like, when you work at a record store and you want to, like, build your collection, that's the one that's like, you know, hey, this is, this. you have to get it. It's an essential. And I did. Totally. That was my that was my first one, too, and it did not disappoint. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. Um, I mean, this is the one I think that they're most well-known for. Uh, I don't think it's their best one, but it's certainly their most influential. Uh, the songs that you kind of cited really kind of fall off this record. Um, yeah, it's an all-timer. It, it gives you kind of two different things. You get Nico's songs that can be a little bit more jangly, and then you've got um, like the Lou Reed ones that are definitely droney, like heroin. <laughs> we go even more experimental next but they were still had a one foot in the 60s um for sure with this one and um and and lou reed establishing himself as is in addition to talking about street level like edgy things he's also very literate and a lot of a lot of references to writing 
Um, but um, but yeah, and I, his songs tend to be my favorite on it. But I do love All Tomorrow's Parties with Nico. I think that song, that song is amazing. Steve, what do you think about that first one? Are you there? Yeah, the first album's pretty good. I remember it more for some of those. It's funny that first one. I just kind of remember. I mean, it's a good album. And just like you guys at the record store, yeah, like I was like required to at least check the Velvet Underground out. I got the, I just bought that box set used uh, that came out sometime in the late nineties. I think it had all the albums in it, including this one. Um, but I remember it more for it in other aspects of pop culture. Um, as a matter of fact, when I think about how I got into the Velvet Underground it was more about hearing about them from other places that were not them. Uh, the cover of white light, white heat on that live David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust album. Um, the, the movie velvet Goldmine. That was the first time I kind of like one of the first times I thought about them. And the only reason I was watching that movie as a teenager is cause I was a David Bowie fan. I knew that there was some kind of ties to glam and David Bowie and stuff. Um, the cover of All Tomorrow's Parties by uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds on their covers album. And then also uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. Isn't isn't there a, a pretty... Yeah, there's a Velvet Underground yeah, song. There there is, the, there is. It, that, yeah, there is. That'll come up on... the bus. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a that's actually a, a Nico song. Just a straight from, Nico song. Oh, okay. From her that's solo. Right. Yep. But, that's right. But Lou, Lou Reed and Sterling Morrison, or maybe John Cale, uh, co-wrote... Uh, one of her solo albums. So, so that's kind of like an unofficial sequel to that, that first one. Got you. And that, that movie came out a little over 20 years ago, I think. And, but there is a Velvet and, Underground song in that movie, which we'll talk about at the next album. But all of those things, and then the iconic album cover with the banana, banana. I think about all those things before I actually think about the songs on this album. Um, I don't listen to that, this album a lot. This the first one. Um, but it's good. And yeah, it's definitely, I mean, we're going to talk about this tonight. I'll talk about it when we're talking about loaded a bit is that, you know, that first album definitely is like a touchstone for a lot of different genres of music that sprang from it. I think that, uh, loaded is as well. So it's good. It's a good record. I, yeah, it's a, sometimes, sometimes that, uh, that, that they get a little too experimental. They sound like my kid in the background there. But uh, that's it's it's good. It's a good record. Yeah. And you bring up the point about being influential. I mean, there's the classic quote that I'm going to get it wrong, but it's like somebody said, you know, 500 people bought that first album and every one of them started an important band or whatever. And yeah, if only the Velvet Underground was as popular as their influence was. If that makes right. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and And while that's a great quote and all, and yes, they were very influential. I also think of it like, they sounded, it had that, because they were proto-punk, they had that sound that like, wait, actually, we, like, you know, you could be somebody that had some talent but was just playing in your garage. Like, you know, I could, I could maybe be a part of that. Like, it seemed street level enough that, that it was, that was approachable. Um, so, anyways, that, that album uh, didn't necessarily make waves at the time. It was definitely still considered underground. It is funny, though, I talked to my dad about it, who was very much into music and in, in, when the year it came out and was a teenager. Um, and uh, did he, he record put, a segment again? Did he, record he did a not. Segment? He did not. But he did buy. He, he told me he's like, I bought that album on the on the cover alone 
Um, and, uh, and, and, and he apparently enjoyed it as a teenager. So that's great. Um, so, uh, from there they move on. They, they, you know, I don't know, you know, there's a story kind of, a, behind the scenes drama of what happened, but, uh, they kick, uh, Andy Warhol's no longer their, their, uh, manager. Um, and they move on and they want to follow it up with, and they basically make a very short, like a short album, almost an EP called, um, white light, white heat. And this one, they've got their eyes, like all the experimental stuff on the last one. They want to, they want to kick, you know, crank it up. Um, and, you know, they basically uh, using, uh, what is it? The uh, They made a deal, uh, basically an endorsement deal with this company called Vox, which was like a, um, you know, a, a musical uh, equipment company um, that they were able to compress and distort all the, the music on here where it was so, so distorted levels that it basically became, uh, you know, the the flagship for punk music to come for any noise rock to come the way that it was recorded. There was nothing like it out there before. Um, that being said, it is a hard listen. It's extremely abrasive. Um, the title song was the only single off of it. White light, white heat. Of course, we all know that song. It is a song about, uh, just, uh, uh, uh amphetamines and <laughs> so much so that, that, uh, you know, you might even kill your mom. Um, and, but that song is a rager. Um, and you really are starting to get this like phase one velvet underground song. It's this, this really like, almost like, you know, they say like three chords or four chords for bands like the Ramones and punk, but they had two often. It was like a repeating two chords back and forth. Um, slamming piano and then giving way to a, uh, a, a really jazzy off-tempo guitar solo. Um, but that title song, I really like that song. I do feel like it's a banger, even if it, if it goes off the rails. So yeah, that's the point. Kind of reminds me of some of the, like the latter day, uh, Nine Inch Nails work where, uh, it kind of fades out into a messy guitar solo, but, um, but I, I rather like that, that that song uh sister ray is an insane experimental track it's like like i said it's uh oh that's on this one yeah I, I, shit, I got it. anyways that song is uh is groovy it's it's 15 minutes long um feels like it would be in like a movie where someone's dying of a, of a drug overdose uh the song also has the gift which i i know is a steve favorite um uh, and uh it is it is really uh out there it is really out there it did not chart it you know, it was banned from radio stations because of the distortion level. Um, but they were pushing what they wanted to do with noise as far as they could. Do you, what do you guys have to say about white light, white heat? Yeah, no white light, white heat. I listen to that more often than I listen to the, uh, the, the first album. I like it quite a bit. It is very noisy. It's a really noisy record, very raw, but 
most of it's pretty immediate, and I like that. I like that dirty street level Lou Reed stuff. That's a that's a vibe of Lou Reed that I dig. Um, yeah, I mean uh, the uh, the Sister Ray is definitely not immediate and to the point, but most of the rest of the album is. And then you've just got the yeah the the the, the nonsense that is the gift which is a song that's always cracked me up. And I actually believe Eric described it to me before I first heard it decades ago. And it's a story of a, basically it's a guy who like thinks his girlfriend's cheating on him. So he puts himself in a box and gets mailed to her apartment. And the guy that she's cheating on him with and, and her are at the house and they're like, what's in this box? Like, we don't know. Let's stab it with a sword first or something. Some such that's kind of oh, yeah, it's like she stabs it with the scissors. She has these like long or whatever. But yeah, it, yeah. It, and you can imagine what happens next. Yeah, it's just it's so silly. I, I love it. Uh, I love that song. That one's um, actually I think that's John Cale because he's got an accent that that reads that story. And it's it it is great writing. It's very funny. Yeah. No. Yeah. You know, John Cale is kind of a, they're all bookish and literate to an extent. Um with their when they take over and they do their own you know lyrics uh white light white heat though yeah awesome title track pretty noisy pretty immediate was thoroughly packed in the post office and agreed to pick him up at three o'clock he'd marked the package fragile and as he sat curled up inside resting on the foam rubber cushioning yeah i i think this record is certainly uh very abrasive kind of the antithesis of uh, a little bit of what was going on in their first self-titled record um, where you've got the Andy Warhol, you know, spaciness um, kind of drugged out things that are slow. You get something that uh, has a black album cover and it just is in your face. So instead of the kind of here, take this pill spaciness that gives you in like this LSD sort of like woozy feeling that is not on this record this record is amphetamine driven and in the sense of like really being a uh i think a pioneer record for what alternative music was really going to kind of form itself into um and i do like that grimy version of lou reed where you know as steve i think appropriately puts it like street level instead of this kind of poet level um it's a little bit more high-minded. This is just more in your face. Uh, it, it, it is a great record, but it's not one that I reach to because um, it's intense. It's actually a pretty intense record in, for that time frame. Yeah, and I would say that trying to describe like what was so uh, inspiring about their sound was I think about the chords. I think about Sterling Morrison's guitar work, the chunky rhythm guitar. Uh, like it's like power chords. It's it's it, it was like that wasn't a thing that was happening in music where you were just like over and over again. And that is all over this record. And that would like change the face of, you know, music. Um, I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. But like just no, playing these, yeah. these chunky, chunky chords, repetitive. Um, but that was not a thing. And and you got to give credit to this band for 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 fucking with that. Yeah. Yeah. And while they said that White Lightweight, he was going to be that was going to be there. They wanted to make a antagonist to the summer of love. 
And so White Light, White Heat was going to be like their, uh, you know, basically answer to to all the pretty things and the flowers in their hair. Um, but they but then at some point they wanted to change. They wanted to be pretty. And, um, you know, I think Lou Reed and John Cale had a different idea of the future of the band. I really do believe John Cale was responsible for the experimental um, direction they were going. And, um, you know, Lou Reed always had a pop sensibility. He always wanted to have one foot in the gutter. Um, so never get too pretty. Um, but I think at some point they had, they were at an impasse and Lou Reed, uh, went ahead and fired John Cale. Um, and they hired this, uh, this guy, Doug Ewell to be their, their bass player. But Doug Ewell could play pretty much anything and weirdly sings a lot like Lou Reed um, on some of the softer Lou Reed songs. And they decided their next album, they wanted to make an album that was either about love or religion. Those are the two themes they would talk about and a complete 180 from their last album. Uh, Lou Reed has said that White Light White, he was as far as they could take that production style of noise. And so they released their self-titled album in 1969, The Velvet Underground, uh, which was uh, soft. It was catchy. There was a little bit more pop sensibility, but it still feels like kind of a haunted album. Sometimes I feel so happy. Sometimes I feel so sad. Sometimes I feel so happy. But mostly you just make me mad Baby, you just make me mad Linger on There are some really standout tracks, in my opinion, um, even though they're, they're, they're ballads like Candy Says, Pale Blue Eyes. Um, there's a B-side that came out just before this called Stephanie Says, which is in the Royal Tenenbaums, when Mordecai is flying through the air. Stephanie says that she wants to know why it is, though she's the dog, she can't be the There's some rockers on here too. Beginning to see the light is an absolute rocker. Um, this one feels almost like a, it, it, it feels like it's got, uh, this coldness to, uh, to a folk approach, folk rock approach that I don't hear in a lot of stuff from 1969. It still feels like it has that street level approach, even though they're doing a, a pop thing, they still get to do experimental, um, with one track called murder mystery. So that, that definitely feels like their older work. But um, Mark, what do you think about the self-titled record? Uh, so their second self-titled record, um, which kind of redefines them yet again. Uh, it This is a record that I tend to sail over uh, a little bit more often. Not to the saying that it's not one of my... It's not a strong... It, I'm, I'm not saying that it's not a strong record. It's just that I kind of for, always forget that it's in the catalog. Uh, and uh, there's even an album on here in this catalog that I had no idea even existed up until this point, actually. That was Squeeze that had Doug Ewell essentially taking over the reins of Velvet Underground. 
Um, but this record, I can definitely see the transitional period between white light, white heat to loaded. So it does kind of bridge that gap, um, brings that kind of songwriting style uh, at its kind of rough draft that you see, I think, better expressed on the next record, Loaded. Can you say I've come to hate my body and all that it really Yeah, I'm a, I, I, probably my second favorite of theirs. Um, I like this album. I feel like it leads into the loaded nicely. Um, I don't necessarily miss John Cale's weirdness. A little bit of John Cale goes a long way. Uh, I, I like that, that they do a little bit on, on the... It feels to me, maybe I'm wrong, but it's on this one, It's I, I, I feel like they take turns uh, with lead vocals more. Maybe I'm just imagining. No, you're that, right. It, you're right. Uh, Doug Ewell sings. I believe he sings Candy Says and uh, Lou Reed sings uh, Pale Blue Eyes. Um, but they sound like Doug Ewell can do that soft Lou Reed very well. Yeah. And and the drummer, Mo Tucker, uh, sings on one of the songs, too. At least one of them. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And I yeah, think she right. might sing on Loaded, too, even though she's not on the whole album. I'm not sure. Loaded has vo- multiple vocalists, too. But I like I like the uh, the self titled record. It's uh, it, it's it it's not as noisy as yeah. It's it's it ditches some of the experimentation, and it's not as noisy as White Light White Heat. But it, it's kind of just gets them down to their essence of just writing songs. And I think you'll see some of that unloaded too. Um, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, I, I Pale Blue Eyes and Candy says to me are are some of the top songs. I guess of the sixties, it would still be the sixties. Those songs are so yeah, and it's good. A, like like most bands of this era, they're releasing an album every year minimum, sometimes almost two a year, um, and uh, they're pretty high quality for the the output in the late sixties. So after this, um, we get to kind of a, a moment for the band where um, there was kind of a merger between their record labels. I think Verge Records was was buying out whatever they were on before, and there was some pressure, and there was some pressure to write some hits, and um, they have been playing. Um, Max's Kansas City in New York. They were like the house band. Um, and at some point, uh, Mo Tucker got pregnant and when they were about to go into the studio. And so she's not on this album at all. She is credited as the drummer, but that's she was their live drummer. And I do like that they credited her, but she is not on the album at all. It is, uh, you know, made up like Doug Ewell plays drums on some tracks. I, think, I believe his brother plays drums on some tracks. It's a studio people. Um, 
it is uh but they went into this this one with this understanding this uh <laughs> demand they uh, to write an album of hits and lou reed um was you know said okay i'll do it track after track we're gonna make we're gonna make you the most pop album velvet underground can do and honestly that's why i picked this one i i guess i love to see the little guy uh do well uh i love to see you know i love to see a noisy band abrasive band try to make some bangers try to make some songs for everybody i i when it all comes together i think it's great and um, as we'll talk about, I think it comes together on this record. Whether or not the people knew that is a different story. Um, not to put you on the spot, but do you yeah. feel that there's been a band that has successfully done that? Yeah, I mean... Like in our modern era? Like, would you sure. say like Nine Inch Nails, for example? Because I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's a great example because... They almost like the culture started, shifted. Oh, exactly. They, yeah. they almost started cleaner than they ended up. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that you, like, if you like punk music, which is, I guess, appropriate for this conversation, you will see punk bands that, that tried to go more pop. Um, like sometimes Day. it works Yeah, or, or rancid, you know, like, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but this one feels very authentic, and and no, I, I know, think I think it worked for Green Day. They became one of the most popular, best-selling bands of all time. It's true, so. yeah, it's true, it's true. Um, but uh, you know, it was it was really they really tried to make a commercial record, and um, I know it's a weird pick for me. You know, on this podcast, also often I am encouraging the picks that are a little noisier, a little bit more abrasive. Um, but I also love when a band like that. Uh, tries to make something for the people. And I feel like that's this album. Um, that being said, uh, they worked on it in the studio. It was disjointed. Mo Tucker wasn't there. And even like Doug Ewell said, we should have waited for her to have her baby before we recorded. But there was this merger at the record label. They felt pressure. They had to record. Um, and it's disjointed. Like like uh, Doug Ewell sings on almost half the songs on here. Songs that until we, the season, I was sure it was Lou Reed singing. Uh, which we'll get to. Um, made the same mistake. Made the yep. same mistake. Yep. 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 And Yule had a lot of songwriting. So, you know, we'll talk about Squeeze and what Yule did to that later. But he was vibing with the band, with with Lou Reed, with Sterling Morrison. And Sterling Morrison shows up and knocks it out of the park on this record. Um, even though it's disjointed and they're, you know, they didn't have their normal drummer and people were coming in and out of the studio and they were just trying to make something commercially successful. It wasn't commercially successful, but you know, I picked it because I think it's a, it's a, uh, it's a testament to uh, synergy when, <laughs> when things, yeah. when, when things work out, um, when things work out and uh, you know, when, uh, when a uh, punk band just wants to serve the people French fries, it's that's the, that's this album. So, yeah, but not really losing any sort of credibility. It's not like they're selling out because right. I, I just feel like this is just another facet of them that they had this in them the whole time. And they're like, yeah, we like to experiment, but we can be um, easy on your ears at the same time. I mean, every right. goddamn track on this record goes down pretty smooth. Yeah. Yeah. So 
it was received like you know they their last album the self-titled one was the first one to chart um so they were for the first time like a commercial success this one came out it was okay it was well received like i think it had some of the best um critic reviews of the time it also had and this is very comforting to know that like old time velvet underground fans thought it was too like they sold out like even back in the in the early 70s people were like yo you know i like the earlier stuff when they were noisy like <laughs> it's stupid but it is comforting to know that 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 person has always been around <laughs> um but uh you know now it's ranked pretty high usually in the one to two hundreds on the Rolling Stone 500 greatest albums of all time. Um, it's generally got eight to 10 out of 10 on the, on the, you know, meta scores. So, um, and while it's not experimental, that kind of chunky uh, rhythm section, the two, the, the two chord back and forth repetitive thing that will show up in a lot of the songs on here. So that kind of velvet underground feel doesn't totally leave this record. And, uh, excited to talk about it. So your lineup on this is Lou Reed and vocals, rhythm, guitar, and piano. Doug Ewell doing a ton of shit. Bass guitar, piano, organ, lead guitar, acoustic guitar. And he sings on a few tracks that we'll talk about. Sterling Morrison plays his lead and rhythm guitars. Maybe does a little backing vocals. Mo Tucker, maternity leave when this album comes out. But they credit her because she was a big part of the band. Um, they also brought in Adrian Barber, who played drums on Who Loves the Sun. Uh, Tommy Castanero, who played drums on Cool It Down and Held Held High. And, and then Billy Yule, playing drums on Cowboy Bill and Oh Sweet Nothing. Um, and uh, shortly after, well, before it was released, Lou Reed quit the band. And he said, well, I left you an album full of hits. Goodbye. And left to do his solo career. Um Doug Ewell would pick up the reins, as Mark said, and release an album called Squeeze with another band. Sounds nothing, nothing like Velvet Underground. At all. Um, Doug Ewell actually seems like a pretty okay guy. Uh, probably That was probably a record label decision that he had to do it that way. Um, not recommended that you listen to Squeeze unless you guys loved it. I did listen to it once over. Uh, it wasn't as bad as like, say, uh, a post Jim Morrison doors record. Um, so it wasn't horrible, but it definitely was not the same band at all. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ever get around to it. I, I chose to listen to, the main album that we have to discuss tonight a couple more times through, but, uh, doesn't seem like I was missing much. Nah, nah, not really. But anyways, let's get to this album. Track one. Who loves the sun? Who loves the sun? Who cares that it makes plants grow? Who cares what it does since you broke my All right, that's an opener. Who loves the sun? And right off the bat, we're not getting Lou Reed. This is I my jaw hit the floor when I when I read this. It's a, this is sung by Doug Ewell, 
And Doug Ewell can do a, like I said before, when Lou Reed wants to sing like soft and sweet, Doug Ewell can match that. This is a Doug, Doug Ewell saying this. Lou Reed wrote it. Um, Doug Ewell has disputed that, but sure, let's meet in the middle. They both wrote it. Um, this is a very sarcastic song about how like heartbreak can taint the world and lack in the world. Who loves the sun? Who cares that it makes plants grow? Who cares what it does since you broke my heart? Just a very sarcastic and bitter, funny, but the song itself, you know, is a, uh, is a kind of a psychedelic folk song. Steve, what do you think about Who Loves the Sun? Yeah, it's a great opener, and I, I like that it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a joke. I mean, they were the the the, uh, the 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 title of the album is also a joke. You know, they're loaded with hits, and the first thing they do on this album is write kind of one of their most accessible songs out there. It almost sounds like it could be a, you know, a hippie hangover song from the '60s, but uh, you know, it's it sounds really pretty and upbeat, but at the same time, I kind of feel like the uh, the singer is, is kind of saying like yeah you know everybody loves the sun but who really gives a shit like it doesn't doesn't make a difference it's a, there's just like I don't know some kind of sadness to to what he's singing um yeah it's a it's a it's it's a fun way to start this record it, it at first blush it sounds like something that uh sunshine sedate colony would have written but when you're kind of when you're kind of listening to it closer, it's got a sarcastic vibe to it. But at the same time, that doesn't betray how easy on the ears it is. It's a it's a really fun and good song. Yeah, it's a acoustic guitar. You've got some like almost like harpsichord moments, some uh, some like classical like guitar playing. Um, uh, it definitely feels like a flower child song. Absolutely. But there is some chunky punk strumming. And uh, what do you think, Mark? I mean, when I first heard this song, it, it sounded like <clears throat> that it could have been like a beef track uh, between them and the Beatles. Uh, sounds so reminiscent sun, of Here Comes the Sun. It's all right. And that's by design, I believe. 1970 was roughly around the time I think 1970 maybe that's when Abbey Road finally came out Beatles were still were still seen as this massive band that had so much commercial appeal that oh you want some hits all right you can write a Beatles song for you that kind of mentality is what I was getting from this just kind of like that New York sneer like fine we, we, we know what you like so I, I just <laughs> kind of think it's one of those types of tracks I like it but I think there is a little bit of intention behind the sound of it yeah yeah no I, I rather like this song I um, our, our cinemaphile friends out there will know that they played this in the opening scene to High Fidelity when he's uh, yelling, when uh, John Cusack is yelling at his girlfriend um, and talking about how pop music is really the saddest, saddest genre of music of all time. Um, great scene. 
yeah. Wait I mean, a minute. I like because uh, I think the last track on this record also shows up in that same movie as well. I think you're right. Yeah. And yeah. I want to say it's kind of at the end. I wonder if that was like what they were trying to do. Yeah. Kind of bookend think, yeah. the record with the movie with that this particular record. I think that sounds intentional as well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But I do I do like the song. Um while I don't get down with the the flower child music, um I think the sarcastic tone helps, but I do I mean, the music is great and you know, makes me think I'm being too hard on flower child music. Uh, I, I, I do love like the, when it gets really weird and the classical guitar comes in and you know, and, uh, the harpsichord it's, it's, it's fun. It's a great track, but yeah, what's the, uh, Oh, sweet. Nothing's the, uh, the last track on yeah, yeah. the album, right? Yes. Yeah. It's yep. definitely in high fidelity. I looked it up. Yeah. They're both yeah. on there. Yeah. Look at that. But it leads us into, uh, and you know, possibly debatable guys. You let us know after we get to, through track three, but. Maybe this should go in our trilogy of like great trilogy of songs on a record tracks one, two, and three on this one, but it leads us straight into Sweet Jane. Standing on the corner, suitcase in my hand. Jackson's course, Jane is in her vest. And me, I'm in a rock and roll band. All right, Sweet Jane. Sweet Jane is hands down one of the poppiest songs Velvet Underground ever touched. Um, it's got this like uh, anthemic power chord loop that happens as Lou Reed just tells us this cool ass story about Jack is in his coat and Jane is in her vest and me, I'm in a rock and roll band. Um, he's telling a story of people that they have their own trials and tribulations um, and the world can beat you down and make you lose your spirit. Um, but, uh, you know, if it's really just a testament to like, you know, if you have love, you can beat it. Basically, there's a positive aspect to it, even if it's there's the moments of just trying to be too cool for school. Um, it's 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 heavy. It feels like it still feels like that waiting for the man like chord loop but just a little bit slower a little bit bigger it has some uh some uh rising action and um it does if you just listen to that guitar that guitar chord uh loop it is a little punk um uh, drums are explode quietly when they need to um and uh it gets epic Ooh, sitting down by the fire Mark, what do you think about Sweet Jane? I mean, not to really get into hyperbole, but I, I'm pretty sure the three of us would agree this is probably one of the best songs written of all times. Uh, it just, it's a classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, <laughs> it is. I mean, Lou Reed, this was part of his 
uh, catalog of songs all through until he, he died. I mean, and how many cover versions of the song do we have? It's probably list is long. Um, I think the Cowboy Junkies was the one that also brought this to uh, remind people in the 90s. The song is awesome. Um, I saw them play it at the Bridge Benefit concert. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's really good. I mean, it's got, like you said, rising action. Um, sounds like the band gives a shit. You know, I hate to say that they weren't giving a shit, but they were extremely serious about being able to write just a really well-crafted song and even just the structure of the song just really takes you places it's one of the best songs ever written on the note about the structure um lou reed was pissed that the original release of this they like shaved off a minute of the song heavenly wine and roses I think it was a, actually a good part. It was either the wine and roses part or the did anyone have a heart part? Like they, they shaved off an important minute of this song. So on the on the streams and everything that's been released since the 90s, um, it's got the full version, which is which is superior. But yeah, the original release shaved off a minute of this track, which is what a what a fucking outrage. Steve, what do you, I know you got something to say about this song, Steve. Yeah, I got a lot to say about this song. A uh, few things. One point of order, I think, uh, to your point about trilogy of songs, I, I I don't think we could say that because uh, "Who Loves the Sun" is good, but it's nothing compared to "Sweet Jane" and the song that follows. So, while they're all good, "Sweet Jane" and the next track are w- way up there on the on the mountain um, and quality style. Uh, yeah, I've always liked this song. It was probably one of my first introductions to. Well, when I was saying earlier, like had the way I learned about the Velvet Underground was not just listening to them is listening to things around or about them. Yeah, that that cover off of Natural Born Killers is one like I, I think I might have not even known this was a, a Velvet Underground song until like two years after I heard that soundtrack like 10 times. Um, their cover of It's Great. It's way slowed down version of the track. It's it's wonderful. That Cowboys Junkies version is awesome. And uh, go back to season one to hear us talk more about that. I've loved you since the day we met. Anyone has ever heard a heart? Discuss the five year gap where Trent Reznor made a bunch of soundtracks. And uh, as far as of this version goes, I mean, yeah, it's pretty much a perfect song. Um, that the. Uh, there, there's, I really like the production of it. Everything sounds very clear. Um, uh, some point, some stuff in it that I just like, like specific parts, is that Lou Reed does this sometimes, but in this track, and I, me and Eric were talking about this a few weeks ago. Sometimes Lou Reed will like, I don't know, be so pleased with himself, he'll like laugh during uh, his uh, his vocal delivery. And in this one, he does that little thing where he's like, eh, me, <laughs> I'm in a rock and roll band. 
I I love that way he delivers that. Um, the uh, the 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 la 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 part, you know, the la 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 la, you oh, know yeah. that part. Oh, and yeah. then the bass with the bass da, taking a walk, da, da, the bass da, the bass kind of goes da, da. up. Yeah, then the 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 bass line kind of gets a little bit more of a workout there. That's great. But that part you just brought up, Eric, I love the, uh, uh, you know, the line that everyone who had a heart, oh, they wouldn't turn around and break it. And anyone that's going to play a part, oh, wouldn't even turn around and break it. How the band kind of shouts that part together. And if, if it's not the entire band shouting it, they push the vocals up and distort them a little bit towards in the front. It's a wonderful part of the song. Um, and all this is just the song itself. Uh, I think Mata Hoop will do a cover of it too. That's pretty good. And yeah, also for whatever reason, uh, my son loves this song, my two-year-old. Uh, I don't remember what day it was when this came on, but I put it on in the kitchen and he just started doing his little two-year-old up and down side to side dance he does sometimes. And I, I could just, you know, Hey Google play sweet Jane by the velvet underground. And if it played the right version of it, because sometimes it would grab one of the weird slow versions of it that I didn't want to hear. Anyways, yeah, when the when this version of it would come on, that beginning where it's all kind of jingly jangly, he would just run up and start dancing. He still does it, you know, now. It's uh, wonderful. I So a song I already liked that I liked in the past, in the present, and I will like in the future because my two-year-old gave me a new reason to love it. Uh, Sweet Jane, top, top of top shelf. Perfect. Perfect song with a capital P. Yep. You guys said everything I was going to say. I, if, if I could ever chisel down a 10 top 10 songs of all time, I do feel like I would put sweet Jane on here somewhere. I do love this song. Yeah. It's, it's that good. It could, it could be in the top 10 songs of all time. If you get, if aliens landed and you had to give them 10 songs, I think this version of sweet Jane would be on there. And, 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 and where does this song get experimental? Because it's a pretty clean cut anthem, rock anthem. I'll tell you. Uh, yes, when Steve was talking about the whole band, like kind of screaming the, when everybody has a heart part. But then the organ comes in. The organ comes in, it's distorted, it's loud, and it just kind of starts riffing over everything else. And it's kind of weird, but it works. And it's fun. It doesn't take away from the, the momentum of the song. This is a great track. I really like uh, Lou's delivery of that line, wine and roses. For some reason, yeah. the, the, just his delivery <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. He slips yeah. into, he slips into, you can tell, I mean, who wasn't, but he, he slips into Dylanisms. Sometimes. Bob, yeah, yeah. He gets a little with Bobby. His, he yeah. gets a little Bobby with his delivery sometimes. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, but this follows into another barn burner, a little track called Rock and Roll. When she was just five years old There was nothing happening at all Every time she puts on the radio There was nothing going down at all Not at all Then one fine morning she puts on a New York station You know she don't believe what she heard at all She started shaking to that fine, fine music You know her all 
All right, so rock and roll is... Uh, Lou has created this story about a five-year-old girl named Jenny uh, who is an, uh, basically just a, a stand-in for him um, when he fell in love with Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis and just uh, how rock and roll can change one's life. Um, she started dancing to that fine, fine music. Her life was saved by rock and roll. Um, it is also like the last track. You can hear the old Velvets with the kind of repetitive chord strumming. It's very chunky, but it is also poppy. It has big guitar solos. It is catchy as all hell. Um, at some point, uh, it almost feels like, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, Lou Reed has fun with his vocals. He's screaming, fine, 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 like with a falsetto or when he says, watch me now. Uh, it's 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 a fun one. And I will go ahead and put this over to Steve. Rock and roll. Yeah, this this is where on this album, I think that uh, a lot of times this album reminds me of the Rolling Stones. And that's not a problem. That's a, that's a feature, not a bug. And this is a great, great rock and roll song called rock and roll i like the genre of songs that talk about discovering the power of rock and roll and this is one of the best ones um it's 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 got some great lyricism which you kind of expect from a lou reed and friends um one line that i really like is despite all the amputations you know you could go out and dance to a rock and roll station which i'd imagine means growing up bored in the suburbs uh despite how boring life was rock and roll could still take you to another place. Uh, it's got, it's got, you know, it's got, it's got a bouncy guitar riff. It's got a, an organ solo. And uh, I love that the chorus, um, it's, it's a great track, you know, it's, it's all right now. It's good stuff. Sometimes the guitar does like a reverse thing, a reverse effect, which is just, so ahead of its time it, it sounds awesome it's a, a yeah at some points the guitar work sounds like it could be 90s but you know, uh, what i like about it what i like about it though is that like it kind of it's it's a well-composed song it's still loose and, and gives you know, it's got room to breathe it's jangly but not too noisy it's kind of you know some of the stuff they were doing on the previous records with just a little bit more of a polish to it yeah, if you just listen to like the bass and the drums and maybe the rhythm guitar, it's like doing this like like this like one two repetitive thing, but then they like everything over that is, is, is modern. Mark, what do you think about rock and roll? So, just like the songwriter you know, said, another song that really proclaimed the power of rock and roll. Uh, Joan Jett said it. I love rock and roll. I love this rock and roll. This song right here, 1970, I feel is almost the beginning of what 70s rock is going to do. Um, some in more darker corners, some in more like the Eagles corners and things like that. 
but seeing how this is right at the uh, recorded, probably at the end of 69 and released in 70 or shit back then, they probably cut a record in two months and put it out. Not like we see today. Um, so I, I don't know. This song right here is probably my favorite Velvet Underground song. Uh, I think it does have a little bit over Sweet Jane, despite me fawning over that last track. But I really do feel that this song just has that drive that just everything's going to be all right kind of feeling. Um, it's, uh, it's a powerful song. I mean, because you could feel the energy and the passion and how Lou Reed was basically telling his own story. And you as a listener can just feel that energy. It's a good one. Yep. Yeah, I'm right, I'm right with you. This is uh, somehow they kept the momentum going after S- Sweet Jane and, uh, you know, debatably topped it. Um, and uh, they move on to a track called Cool It So Cool It Down has, you know, they're now they're dabbling with a little like Southern Americana and Southern American rock would take over in the 70s. Um, the music is a little wholesome sounding, uh, but what it's about is not so much. It's, uh, it's it, so I, I like that the music is a little, you know, uh, too wholesome for me, but the what it's about is gives it the edge. Uh but me, I'm down around the corner looking for Miss Linda Lee because she's got the power to love me by the hour. Gives me the W-L-O-V-E. This is a song about revenge whoring. And like when, you're, when your girlfriend like is mad at you, you go out and find, uh, find some strange on the street. It's very funny, but it's a good rock song. Cool it down and is catchy and it's got a good vibe to it. And, um, uh, you know... I think uh, if uh, with a little more balls, the Eagles could have written this song. I don't know, it's, but it's a fine song, a fine track. Steve, cool it down. Yeah, cool it down. They really the sequencing on this album is really good. I mean, it starts out kind of flowery with the first track, has a one-two punch of classic rockers that go at different paces. Sweet Jay and Rock and Roll are both classic rockers, but they don't rock at the same beats per minute. And then I like that Cool It Down, they're talking about cooling it down. They don't really slow things down too much. It's just got, it's less intense than the last couple of tracks. Um, and it's yet another song that has a Rolling Stones vibe to it, definitely. Uh, you know, the Velvet Underground, they were interesting because they were a New York band, but they also, I mean, if you listen to them, you can kind of hear the British Invasion in there. You can hear Garage Rock, and you can also hear the future alternative noise rock coming from it all in one place. Um, I mean, shit, they could even be like really heavy and noisy when they wanted to. Uh, they, like I said, that they are a cross section of so many things. 
Um, but this one is them kind of just doing it. It's more a, a kind of a British invasion or just like a, you know, garage rock type deal. To me, it sounds like Supergrass, the band yes. Supergrass. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, or, or rather, Supergrass sounds like this. But yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that chorus, cool it down, it sounds like Supergrass. And uh, <laughs> yep. this uh, pod like a whole is pro Supergrass, friends and neighbors. Um, I dig it. I like cool it down. It's fun. It's fun. It uh, just kind of walks down the sidewalk with you, you know? Um has some swagger to it. Uh, it has a little, you know, pep in the step. Um, that really did remind me of kind of the loose Southern kind of British rock vibe that the stones brought to like exile on main street. And, um, certainly that record then propelled, you know, what Brit pop kind of, uh, was trying to mold itself around. But I feel that all of this was, uh, drinking from the same well, that's a good thing. I like cool it down. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun track. Uh, that brings us into um, a track with it really takes it down a notch called New Age. Can I have your autograph? He said to the fat blonde actor. You know, I've seen every movie. You New Age. This is a Doug Ewell sung track. Uh, Lou Reed um, wrote it. Uh, it is a track about, well, a. Um, a dawning uh, of a new age. That's, that's right. Well, exactly that could be, it could be about two different things. Um, so it could be about a fan that is in love with a actress who has passed her prime. Can I have your autograph? He said to the fat blonde actress, you know, I've seen every movie you've been in from paths of pain to jewels of glory, not real movies. And when you kissed Roger, uh, Robert Mitchum, gee, I thought you'd never catch him. Um, and, uh, it could be about uh, this new age for this actress, like this like kind of like rebirth where she has this new relationship, or it could kind of be more uh, cynical where it's like this uh, more of a song about how the public is becomes obsessed with celebrities. There's two different ways to look at it. Um, toxic fandom or a sweet love song. I like to think it's the latter. Uh, what do you think about this particular track, Mark? It's uh, one of those really gentle, sweet songs that uh, you get uh, Doug Ewell, um, who, again, to this time, never thought that anyone besides Lou Reed and Nico were doing any singing. Um, really eerie in terms of how close they sound. Um, but it's... Sorry, this- really quick. Just, uh, just, just credit, like, uh, Lou Reed is always portrayed as a prickly asshole and he probably yeah. was yeah but the fact that he like 
gave up that spotlight so much. I think that's that's a testament to like, you know, he was probably a good collaborator. But anyways. Yeah. And, you know, again, maybe his interests were just solely focusing on where now he could go solo as, as a solo artist versus a collaboration. Um, so not to say that he doesn't collaborate. He came out with that masterpiece, Lulu, um, with Metallica. So they don't... It's not always a singular. I am the progress. I'm the aggressor. I am the tablet. These ten stories. Worship. Worship. Pain and evil have their place sitting here beside me. It's a season four, friends. <laughs> that album is misunderstood. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, okay. Um, but New Age, good track. It's kind of got this haunting kind of feel to it. Um, as if you're kind of seeing this being played out in a nightclub. It's just has that feeling that uh, you're watching something in the audience that just doesn't seem right. That's what this song feels like. When the uh, vocals get big and he's, it's the beginning of the new age. It, I could see, uh, actually I could see Nico singing that. It, uh, it felt like that felt like a throwback to their early album. But Steve, what do you think about new age? Yeah, I I really like this song a lot. I uh, I'm a big fan of the song. It's about like moving on to unexplained or un, un you know uncharted territories or or leaving something behind or I don't know. This song sound you know in in addition to calling it the beginning of a new age, it just sounds kind of like that. It has that grand epicness uh, to it. Um, I really like those lyrics you were talking about, Eric. Um, you know, they, they name check Robert Mitchum in there. Uh, people smarter than me said that there's probably an element to this. That's about uh sexual awakening or, or maybe, you know, uh, discovering, uh, you know, what your sexual preference is. Um, it's good stuff. I mean, the song starts as a template for subdued, sad bastard music, like low or bell and Sebastian. That's kind of how it starts, but then it really like picks up. It, it doesn't really speed up as much as it just becomes like grander. Um, and just has a epicness to it towards the end that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a proto Mogwai or something. Um, I love this song. It's really good. This is this is also a song that Lou Reed was pissed off when the album was released because they cut out another like minute and a half from this track. I feel and, like Lou uh, Reed was pissed off is just like he put he's that, that, that that's his like <laughs> that's his baseline. That's his baseline. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, they uh, but they did cut like the original release. They cut out like all the rising action from the song. Um, so I can understand it. So luckily we live in the post you know, post record company era where they can release it as it was meant to be heard. Um, you know what I like version... about Lou Reed? What's that? He looked like, he looked like a Muppet. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very. Yep. Yep. He did. He looked like a Muppet in the uh, like the Sam Eagle template or Guy Smiley or something. A very straight line for a mouth. Yeah, yeah. Somehow still cool. Somehow he pulled it off. Yeah. Well, New Age, I agree. Solid track. Uh, and um, Doug Ewell, like another point for him as far as you know, just being the mouthpiece. Um, and I feel like the drummer is trying to do a minimalist Mo Tucker style on this, but yeah, it gets I feel big. Like, uh, old Doug Yule. And despite uh, the follies of whatever that squeeze album is, they didn't listen to. He doesn't get the respect he probably deserved for being a big part of this record. And the one before it, how good these albums are. Everybody yeah. always talks about John Cale. If they're not talking about John or Lou Reed, when you're talking about the Velvet Underground, if you're not talking about Lou Reed, you're talking about John Cale. I think you should be talking about Doug Yule a little bit more. Yeah. And Sterling Morrison. I mean, like all the guitar solos on on this album are great. I'll see you at uh, Lonesome Cowboy Bill, Sterling Morrison. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the next track is Held, or sorry, Jesus, Head Held High. Triple H. Triple H. Uh, is that a wrestler or is that 4-H? It is, it is a wrestler. It's after our time. This is a, yeah, yeah. he's from the era of WWF. I believe it was the WWE by that point. The attitude era of your Stone Cold Steve Austin's and whatnot, your rocks. I think that's when Triple H is around. You know, that's after the fun era. Where they And uh, I don't know how much this song has to do with uh, wrestling, but Held Held High is a, uh, it's very much like a a groovy, distorted rock track. Um, Lou Reed, one of his best vocal performances. He's trying a lot of stuff on this song. Mama told me ever since I was seven, hold your head up high. Then again, when he was 11, they said the answer was to become a dancer. Hold your head up high. I just figured they were always disfigured with their head up high. Um, just kind of like it's a, really a song about teaching confidence against classism. Uh, I love it. It's it's uh, it's it's a rocker. Uh, Steve, what do you think about held or head, head held high? Jeez, I can't. We'll never yeah, say it right. It's another one. Ha, ha, now. I don't think I ever had a problem saying it until you just cursed me with this problem. <laughs> Sorry. Enjoy um, it. Enjoy. Yes, this is our version of the ring. But uh, yeah, they, they kick the tempo back up a little bit on this one. It's it's another one that's a loose rocker, if you will. It's got some call and response, which is always fun. Um, the head held high. And it goes back into almost Rolling Stones of this time territory. And, you know, while I love the Stones, I mean, who doesn't? Uh, sometimes, the, well, the Rolling Stones have written some uh, perfect rock songs. 
you rock and roll, if you go through, you're like, all right, I got to tell somebody what rock and roll is, you can probably give them a Rolling Stones. Sometimes, though, even the best Rolling Stones albums, like Exile, and even my uh, my my uh, loved Let It Bleed, sometimes I'm like, all right, get to the point, Stones. Sticky and fingers. Ver- sticky fingers yeah, is sticky where fingers it's at. As well. Okay, well, yeah, but also on Sticky Fingers. Sometimes I'm like, get to the point. I, I don't, you know, sometimes... A little bit, a little bit of uh, intros and outros that could be truncated, but not with this version of the Rolling Stones that I find in Velvet Underground Land. They're going to a jangly Rolling Stones esque rock place on some tracks, but it's very immediate. This album is a lean and mean what thirty eight minutes long, forty eight maybe at best, and I feel like not a moment is wasted on this album. Included uh, head held high. Yeah, um, I think it does harken back a little bit to their older sound by even still being able to comment on the uh, sound that they're not so much competing with, but um, absorbing, I guess, in the culture. And when um, in such uh, great, you know, lyrics as Lou Reed shouting, do the dog, do the dog. That's the do big one, right? The dog. <laughs> I mean, that should be like the Mountain Dew's like dog mascot or something like that. Do the dog. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that was clearly <laughs> one of my highlight of my notes. The song makes you want to do the dog. Um, Arch enemy of Spud McKenzie was do the dog. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, I can hear white light, white heat in here, um, but I also can hear what Steve was talking about, that Rolling Stones effect. Man, it's got some really good jamming at that two-minute mark. Um, it just, it just feels like it would be a good drunken bar band experience. Um, you know, uh, the working class getting together, and uh, you know, hearing like a proto Bruce song. Um, this is uh, this is where it's at. Did you say a proto Bruce song? Yes. Like Bruce I know there are contemporaries. I know they're around. No, it's, it's funny you say that because I'm going to yeah. bring him up on the next song. Well, I, I also like even back in Sweet Jane, I was I have some Bruce flashes of the uh, an, a, anthemic chord progressions. Well, you yeah. guys know what that you guys know what that means. Just keep an eye on that diamond dice. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, that brings us uh, to the rodeo. Next track, Lonesome Cowboy Bill. Cowboy Bill. Uh, my inclination is to not like this song. Uh, it's it's the most uh, kitschy of the of the of the the, the album. Um, it's not country, but I mean it's rockabilly, I guess, um, which is which is okay. Um, but you can't help it. It's 
it's infectious. The song is catchy. Uh, if you listen to the rhythm section, they are actually doing very Velvet Underground-y things with that like one-two chord uh, chugging along. Um, the song itself, Lonesome Cowboy Bill, rides the rodeo. Ever since he was a little lad, loves the rodeo. Bucking Bronx, sipping wine. You go to see him and all the 10-gallon girls love to hear him yodel. A yay-he-o. The song almost sounds like a Quentin Tarantino character. He's a mm-hmm. traveling, like, uh, he's a traveling showman in these rodeos, but he's just kind of like a sad, lonely drunk. And uh, I can't help but like it. It's kind of dumb, but it's catchy, and I quite enjoy it. Um, and uh, it's it's nostalgic, but I guess in a kitschy, fun way that works for Velvet Underground. I don't know. What do you, uh, what do you think, Steve? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you're inclined to be an idiot uh, until you saved yourself uh, based on your opinion of this song. You steered it in the right direction. I think this this song is great. It's, uh, you know, it's a little bit comedic, but it doesn't veer off into twee nonsense territory, much like a uh, bonus track that I'll talk about later that enrages me off this album. But. Yeah, this 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 fun little cowboy song is in the same vein of Bruce Springsteen's Outlaw Pete or Pee Wee Herman's Cowboy Curtis. Uh, you, you know, the Sterling's guitar lead on it is great. There might be a cowbell in there or it might be a pot in a pan. I can't quite tell. Um, it's, it's fairly stripped back, but it moves quick. Before you know it, it's done. It's fun and it rocks just enough. That's my review. Bonus points for the Cowboy Curtis You got to hear the people scream and shout. They call him Lonesome Cowboy Bill. Lonesome Cowboy Bill. He goes. And uh, Mark, what do you think? I do like this one. I, I can see why you'd potentially not be a big fan of the sound going in. I mean, um, when I hear that intro guitar, I hear like a little bit of uh, surf rock guitar mixed with, um, you know, slide guitar country twang. Um, I, I <laughs> It's obviously jarring to hear it coming from, you know, the Velvet Underground who look like they sleep in tombs. But um, I appreciate but- the... Yeah, go ahead. But at the same time, they're of a certain age. Yep. Uh, they were kids in the late 40s and the 50s where you would have saw a Lonesome Cowboy Bill TV show on your black and white TV. Exactly. That makes yeah. sense. No, it does. Yeah, no, it's it's perfect. It has a great pace to it. It's like city country rock. Um, it's just, an, and again, another one sung by Doug Ewell. Uh, okay. And um, it just has that kind of, pre-punk sound uh, mixed a little bit with like honky tonk and a little bit of glam thrown in there for good measure. Uh, it's got a lot going on here. I, I do like this song. Well, well, like Eric said, you know, uh, there's a little bit of rockabilly here. And like we said earlier, you could trace so many bands back to this album or the velvet underground rather. And so, yeah, why don't we throw in uh, they started psychobilly too. Why not? So, just picture picture Lou Reed with one of those haircuts that you could uh, sit <laughs> down. With Frankenstein shoes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
he did kind of actually look like Frankenstein as well as looking like a Muppet. Yeah. Beautiful. Right, give it give it to him. You're welcome, Tiger Army. <laughs> Alright. Next track is a different vibe. I found a reason. It's a love song um, with lyrics like, I found a reason to keep living. Oh, and the reason dear is you. Well, I found a reason to keep singing and the reason dear is you. Uh, it is a love song about someone giving up on life, but keeps going because of love. And uh, the there is some authentic authenticity to the lyrics. It does feel like an, somebody who is truly bought into nihilism and I think Lou dabbled with it um, and but it's sweet oh I do believe if you don't like the things you leave for some places you've never gone before like there there are some pretty pretty great lyrics in this track it feels like a velvet song like it, it, this one could have been on their last album it has a lot of space to it. It's it's folky. It's a little doo-woppy. The the backing vocals are a little doo-woppy, and it has this dream quality to it that it could be uh like uh almost like a dream pop, you know, uh, cocktoo twins kind of thing. Uh, I found a reason. Steve, anything to say about this one? Yeah, it's Lou Reed loves. It seems like doo-wop or. Uh, I don't know if doo-wop's the word, but 50s crooning or 50s laid-back love songs is something, a genre that he likes or he goes back to every once in a while. I'm thinking of his cover of, uh, what was it, This Magic Moment. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, this, yeah. Yeah, this Magic Moment is uh, could be filed away with I Found a Reason. And then a much darker version of that would be, uh, you know, Perfect Day. Um which, you know, was a song written by him that kind of has like a very romantic fifties, uh, early sixties vibe to it. Um, yeah, I, I, I do like, I found a reason. I like that on this album, there's a lot of different genres, but they all seem to kind of blend together. Well, uh, I have a, something to say about that on the next track too. 
And what I like about this one is it does a, uh, there's a trope that I love, which is mostly fashionable from R&B acts in the 90s. And uh, that, 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 that what the song keeps going, but there's a spoken word like, like, you know, plead. And, uh, you know, boys to men were always doing that. <laughs> but yeah, that, uh, that, that it's honey, so I found good. a reason to, yes. yeah, that honey, I found a reason to keep living section and the reason dear it's you. It's just spoken word and it's totally, you could just cut that out and you could stick it in the middle of a uh, boys to men song in the nineties oh, yeah. and it would fit. I'll make love to you. Anyways. Yeah. Season yeah. four. We'll get to them. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we have, we, if we just do a special on the new Jack swing. I'll be happy. <laughs> Mark, what do you think about this track? Um, yeah, it really does take it down a notch. I mean, um, I essentially pretty much had the same thoughts Steve was mentioning about how this kind of fits along with uh, some of Blue Reed's hard on the uh, sleeve moments. Um, and it's a good prototype for what his songwriting is capable of doing in his solo work. I, mean, I think the first Lou Reed song that actually I did hear, um, I'm going to have to say was probably a perfect day. Um, and then it wasn't only until uh, now probably walk on the wild side was probably the first Lou Reed song that I ever heard. Cause that was always played on the radio. Um, but yeah, perfect day when on the train spotting soundtrack, that's my, uh, my Lou Reed kind of, uh, how I even came to figure out that he was alive on this earth. Song. All right. Next track is a little track called Train Coming Around the Bend. song that's about a uh, a city slicker that's have to work in the country and misses his days in the big city um, I'm sure that's certainly a thing but what you have here is some really cool production you have a uh, guitar uh, strum that is echoing and repeating on the beat over and over again as the song kind of and that's like kind of like your train chug it's a guitar it's a guitar hit as the rest of the album is kind of doing a blues thing. I in my notes I made a ministry connection to as far as being like effects meets blues, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but uh, all in all you have a production masterpiece because this song sounds great on headphones. And uh, what do you think about this track mark? 
I mean, you're right. It, uh, it does sound like a train chugging along, which I do think is a pretty awesome effect over headphones. I mean, I think you can even get that in just even if you're listening to it in your car as it goes from left to right. Um, but these types of seventies rock songs are like, that's my bread and butter. Like this is the stuff that, uh, I love. It's got a little bit of that, uh, uh, one foot into kind of that fifties era rock, um, kind of the, uh, origins of rock and roll and then puts it into more of this kind of grimy sauce that isn't afraid to explore every note in the book. Um, that that's my that's my jam. That's why I love seventies rock a lot. Um, and this song is a really good, um, I guess, result of that. Um, it definitely a pioneering sound for what nineteen seventies is really going to be all about in terms of what becomes popular. And even none of those bands would probably cite Velvet Underground besides like your you know, alternative acts like David Bowie at that time, uh, but not some of your mainstream acts. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. They were, they were creating the palette and probably for no fanfare. Uh, But Steve train around the bend. Yeah. Speaking of David Bowie, it's funny you say that. Um, at this point, like the sequencing on this record is amazing to me. Uh, you know, you go from the doo-wop song down to something that could be, it's kind of reminiscent of the Velvet Underground from the other albums, but it's not a retread. And this album, it, 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 it kind of goes in all these different directions, but it has enough of the same DNA of the, uh, the main artist tour never sounds like it's like a mixtape or something. And it reminds me in in that, in that way of a scary monsters to where scary monsters had many different, uh, paces and instrumentation, but it sounded like it was always parts of a whole. And I get the same thing from this album that even though you got songs like this following, uh, you know, uh, I found a reason lonesome cowboy bill handheld high, head held high, uh, new age. It all still sounds like the same band and they're just reaching for these different places, but it never, they never reach so hard that it then sounds like, Whoa, what was that? That's out of left field. And, uh, I think train around the bend perfectly placed. Um, and you know, speaking of scary monsters, there's even some uh, guitar squelches that remind me of Robert Fripp. Uh, I think Sterling's guitar work on this one is another, uh, it elevates it. Um, it's good stuff. It's a kind of a spacey and creepy song. It's uh, it's, it's good. Yeah, no, I I I like this song a lot. I think weirdly, if you look at at it from a production standpoint, it's probably the only one that ties back to the earlier albums as far as experimental with the uh the kind of chugging guitar riffs that go from ear to ear, which is conservative as far as experimenting goes, but that's what we get in this one. And it moves us to our final track, which is Oh Sweet Nothing. Hey, is there another album that has two songs with the word sweet in it? Don't know, 
but this one does. I'm sure there is, but good, great trivia question. Say for Jimmy Brown. He ain't got nothing at all. Not the shirt right off his back. He ain't got nothing at all. And say what for Ginger Brown. We got a song here that is about It's about uh, you know, it's not unlike Walk on the Wild Side where it's about you know, marginalized people um, kind of just doing their thing. Uh, it is about you know, people that are starting over. Um, uh, people that are it's very broad but it's like uh you know, homeless people, um, or drunks, people like that, that are just kind of like, you know, there's like archetypes for, uh, people that, you know, just need a, need a reboot. Um, Doug Ewell does sing on this track. Another one that I did not know was not Lou, but Lou did write it. It does feel like a Lou Reed song because he wrote it. Um, it starts with a groovy piano uh, over a solo soloing guitar. The bass drops kind of set up the fact that we're dealing with a sad story, but it gets epic. Um, you could even like some of uh, Sterling Morrison's guitar solos could could be like among the best Southern rock guitar solos. Uh, it, it, it gets big. At some point, the bass goes for a walk and really carries it into a garage rock territory. They kind of like dip dip themselves in all the palettes on this track. Um, there's a mini guitar solos. There's a few guitar solos in the song, which is fun to hear them play with that. But in the end, what you have is a song about starting over and how liberating that is. Mark, what do you think about Oh Sweet Nothing? Oh, sweet nothing. I mean, this song is the Velvet Underground's Freebird. I know that uh, some circles that would be like, well, does that mean that's a good thing or a bad thing? But just what, in terms of uh, just that feeling that it gives you, happen to be okay with that Leonard Skinner song. Um, it just has that same, like, everything's going to be... Um, at first it starts with like almost like a funeral eulogy um, and then it uh, really just ramps itself up into this kind of just celebratory uh, finality 
I love this song quite a bit. Um, it definitely maybe hit a little harder knowing that I was a big fan of High Fidelity and this was besides the beta band song, Dry the Rain. Those were the two songs off of that movie soundtrack that just always stuck with me. Um, and uh, when I came to listen to this record and how it closed it out, it couldn't be more perfect. Big fan of this track. Yeah, earlier when I was saying that uh, one of the tracks reminded me of Mogwai, that was true. But uh, this one actually, there's a section in this that is very uh, Mogwai-ian where you've got the rising action and you've got, you know, there, there was never a lot of like crazy drumming going on with the, the Velvet Underground. But there's that building section of this where the drums kind of are just going and the guitars are like just like ramping it up um, towards the, the back half of the song. You guys know what part I'm talking about? Yes, oh, yeah. absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's, that's yeah. where the money's made in this song. Yeah, that's where the money's made. There's a big, there's a big release and then yeah. I'm glad because when they do that section, I'm almost like, up, oh, keep it going, keep it going, don't stop, don't stop. All right, you're there. Okay, you can, you can slow it down now. And I, I, I always like that. I'm like, you know, oh, thank you for not just fading out. And then they keep the song going for a few more, you know, like another minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great song. It's, uh, it's, it starts. It, it again. This one has a Rolling Stones vibe to me. Mark says Skinner. I say. Rolling Stones, but there's a twang to it. There's a Sunday morning coming down kind of start to it. Yeah. And then it rises up and just becomes uh, pretty grand. And uh, Mr. Sterling Morrison, again, Sterling Morrison. I, 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 I'm a big fan because I had to sit down and listen to this album with a critical ear. And Sterling Morrison's uh, guitar work on this track is awesome. Um. Overall, Sterling Morrison, actually, you know, I was saying uh, Mr. Yule should get more credit. But yeah, Sterling Morrison, too. They're both, you know, man, they just Sterling Morrison really, really elevates this record. Uh, oh, Sweet Nothing's a great closer. It's a great song. It's got prime rising action. When you open up the pod like a whole dictionary and you look up rising action, you're going to see that German from the cake video. Yes, but then you're going to see this right after it. Uh, great song. Can't wait till somebody builds that uh, that that fan wiki uh, for the show where we can actually see that. Totally. Well, yeah. when we do our live event, we got to track that German guy down and have him yeah. actually come out to just say his <laughs> is the host. Uh, yeah, famous he's gonna, line. He's got he's to host the show. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, guys, you guys are rock. Spot- <laughs> yeah, they were- you guys are spot on though. This uh, oh sweet nothing. What a closer! What a what a song! Um, makes makes me want to believe in seventies rock for sure. Um, I love it. Um, yeah. So you know, you know what's funny? You know what's funny about it though is it's a perfect closer. But I the version I kept getting on my streams, like I I didn't listen to this album in years. I think until we did for the podcast, and I do own it in CD somewhere, or I did. 
But the album I kept listening to on the streams was the fully loaded version. And after this, it would go into a song, I think that was called The Ocean, which is pretty good. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a... Okay, so thank you. Bonus tracks. The Ocean is uh, this big, sweeping, almost shoegazy song. That blows by the sea. Might, the ocean might be the first shoegaze song. Uh, that song is rad. So it is. It, it, it follow, and even even following a big epic closer like "Oh Sweet Nothing," uh, the oceans. Uh, it sounds good. But then the next track is a song that angers me, and oh. it it is a it's twee. It's just yeah, exactly. Those are what my son just did. Uh, that that goddamn what is it? Uh, I'm sticking with you. I'm oh. sticking with you. That is a genre of, of of yeah of '60s like rock. I cannot stand that. Twee just yeah. I'm sticking with you, cause I'm made out of glue. And Meg White would sing on the White Stripes songs. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, it's a template for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That I'm sticking with you. That's Wes Anderson gone wrong. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay with it, but yeah, it would not fit on this album. Um, she sings on another song called After Hours, which is a better better track in my opinion, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, that was off of the third record? Third record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, there's another bonus track from this, which is called... Um, Ride into the sun. And the version without lyrics, the uh, instrumental version, is one of, in my opinion, one of the best B-sides ever. It's, it's, uh, Beautiful, almost surf guitar-y uh, approach to Velvet Underground music. If you haven't heard the instrumental Ride Into the Sun, I'll play it right here. But it's great. Uh, without any other comments on the bonus tracks, we can go into ranking. You bet. Mark, what do you give Loaded? Um... So I'm a I'm a big fan of this record. Uh, I'm a really big fan. This is my favorite Velvet Underground record. It it is um, it is incredibly sequenced. I really do um, now acknowledge what Steve was saying about how well it's sequenced. Very much so, like Scary Monsters. Maybe that's why I love this record so much. Is that it just holds a very high esteem. Um, the songwriting is crisp. They don't spare any notes. I mean, this is a classic record. Uh, so for that reason, I'm going to give it uh, five out of five. Steven. Don't clap. Don't clap. Um, I can't remember what I gave Transformer. Uh, Eric, did we give Transformer a perfect, you and I? It was close to it. 
It was close. It was in the fours. Yeah, and, and it's just it's just so I try to be consistent, and with my inconsistencies, I like in the Lou Reed obra. Uh, did I use that word correctly? Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> but, sure. Like I, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, Ouvre, close Ouvre, Ouvre. 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 Lou Reed discography. Uh, Transformer is still my number one, but this is right behind it. I'll give it a, a 4.1. It's uh, it's my favorite Velvet Underground album, but I'm not always putting the Velvet Underground on. I got to be in a very specific mood. And if I want to hear Lou Reed's voice, I'm probably going to go over to Transformer. But there's so many great songs on this one. And having to listen to it for the podcast, it'll probably get put into my rotation more often. 4.1. That's great. I uh, will put this into the elusive five out of five. Um, this one is uh, weird, weird for me. It makes me okay with genres that I usually don't care about because we reads actually when he tries is a good songwriter and, and uh, can make things literary and smart and, and dumb at the same time, which is an absolute talent. And every song on this is like Lou Reed set out to do. Every song is a banger. Even Lonesome Cowboy Bill. <laughs> every last track is a banger. I will go ahead with Mark on this one. Five out of five. You know, Eric, I'm reviewing, I'm keeping score here. You know, this is not the first time that we both did five out of five. No, no. What do we did? Deftones? No. Uh, Murder uh, City Devils. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Name and Blood. Actually, I could see the uh, what's funny about thematic connection. Actually, that, that, that works out. Well, you know, they mentioned Robert Mitchum on this album. Uh, That's true. <laughs> what's funny about that one, too, is that you guys gave it five out of fives. And I was like, really? Guy? All right. <laughs> uh, didn't quite happen the night i remember it happened that time i was like yeah i like this album too uh, but okay <laughs> yeah well this is a good one and uh while i love tracks off the earlier albums and i think they speak to my sensibilities maybe a little bit more like i said i love it when i when i i love it when a, a street boy does well and and I feel like that's what we hear here is a grimy, a grimy uh, gutter band that made some pop songs and everyone was a hit. So great stuff. Yeah, at, at the same time, Eric, you know, he loves to be challenged by his music. So the, you know, when you, when you get, when you get a uh, Andy Warhol standing in the corner with Nico caterwauling and somebody, you know, the, 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 taking a, a tin can full of fruit and shaking it. Eric likes that too. So I can see how both spec ends of the velvet underground spectrum appeal to you. Sure. Sure. Uh, I, actually, if you guys uh, listen to that um, Joker man podcast where they are covered this, uh, the uh, Nico album with uh, 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 Chrissy from the Sopranos, Michael Imperioli. Yeah. yeah. This is his favorite uh velvets as well and he was actually a good friend with uh lou reed uh toward the towards the uh the in the 2000s but anyways yeah, that they, was his they ripped they ripped off our they ripped off our whole thing they ripped off our yeah. whole thing 
They even ripped off the fact. That's why I scrapped. I I deleted that entire episode we did with AJ Soprano because when I saw they got this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, that's, that's slip, it. The Slipknot you know, episode. Yeah, that Slipknot yeah, episode. That, yeah. that one is a lost episode. You guys Gone. did not get to hear us talk to AJ because yeah. the guys that do the uh, Jokerman podcast ripped yeah. us off and talked to Christopher. <laughs> yeah, that was bad timing. That would have been great to talk about. But we should really try to get him back on the show, though. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe for the corn episode. <laughs> corn, down, spine shank, uh, whatever. <laughs> Whatever, little, just go, little, go little watch. Mud. There's probably mud. a website out there that has like bad promotional posters. AJ Soprano room. No, literally, just, there is a Twitter account um, uh, devoted to uh, AJ's new metal tastes. So, yeah, it's out there. It's out there. Ultra spank. All yep. right, guys, what's what is next for our show? What is well, going to either be? It's going to either be garbage or Bruce Springsteen. No, well, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. Okay, I'm out for the next. It's going to be. Uh, so your highest number is twelve. Radio, okay. Radio. Radiohead or Bruce Springsteen. Calling it. You're calling it. One of those two. All right. What is nine? Springsteen. Oh man, we actually have been talking about this band lately. So it is one of my picks. Um, and now we're really gonna see uh where Eric his tolerance level can be. Because oh, we're gonna be talking about the album from 2001 by the band Tool Lateral. All right. Tolerance level, I get it. Tool, yeah, I, I've been listening to Tool like crazy lately. Perfect. This is, oh, this is good for me. Is uh, that's all we care about, really? Um, I've been listening to Tool all the time lately. This is hilarious. I listened to Forty Six and Two yesterday. It's all, yep. it's all connected, man. Well, all right. Jesus blows his fucking whistle. Let's do it. <laughs> get your peyote. Get your saliva. Get your ridiculous. Get your frogs. Videos. Get your frogs trained. Yeah, get, your fr- yeah. get your get your frog drums. I'm I'm gonna have to talk about frog drums. Right. Uh, right. For Mark and Stephen and Eric, this has been Pod Like a Hole, and we hope that we brought you closer to the underground. Watch me now.